I think we'll start, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, can I say uh, thank you very much indeed for coming. It's a great pleasure to have you here this evening. You are a very special audience, very specially invited. Uh, there were only a certain number of invitations given tonight. So, you know, people are always longing for leadership and decision-making. Have you noticed? Until you make it and take the decisions. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't like the decisions, but I've made it, and uh, that's it. Uh, you're a specially selected list of, of people. So thank you for coming, and it's a great pleasure to have you with us this evening. But it's an even greater pleasure and delight to have with us tonight uh, Harry Blamires and his wife Nancy, who is sitting on the front row with him. Uh, she absolutely refuses to stand up and show herself, but nevertheless... Uh, it's a great pleasure, Nancy, that you're able to come as well. We're delighted you're able to do that. It's uh, more than ten years since the Christian Institute was set up. And one of the very earliest sessions we had was twelve years ago. And some of you may even have been there at the time, or old enough to have been there. Some of you. Um... And it was a session we had in a hotel in Durham, in the city of Durham. Uh, and our speaker was Harry Myers, and he gave us some talks on the theme, The Christian Mind. Uh, and uh, those talks are still in popular demand. They're still being regularly asked for. So they made a very deep impression on all those who heard them uh, and on all those who, having heard them, talked to others about them. And we thought it right and proper, um, it's about ten years ago since we officially became the Christian Institute, to ask Harry Myers if he's willing to come again and speak to us. And last autumn, uh, Humphrey Dobson and myself, Humphrey is the senior researcher for the Christian Institute, and who is playing a part in this evening as well, we went to visit Harry and his wife Nancy in his lovely home in Keswick, uh, and then we went back again later this year to try to persuade him to return and talk to us. And I don't think he took a great deal of persuading. Uh, it was a great delight for both of us, I think, to be at the receiving end of the warm hospitality of Harry and Nancy in their home in Keswick. Uh, and any time they'd like to ask us back, I'm sure we'd be delighted to respond. <laughs> <laughs> Those of you who are old enough will may remember that in 1963, I think I'm right saying, Harry Myers wrote what was to prove a very seminal work, a book called The Christian Mind. Uh, that book, almost 40 years old. And in it, he said, among many things, of course, there is no longer a Christian mind. The Christian mind has succumbed to the secular drift with a degree of weakness and nervelessness unmatched in Christian history. And that was written 40 years ago. I'm not sure what you would have written had you been writing it today. Over the years, um, Harry has written many, many books uh, and uh, given many lectures in this country and abroad, particularly in the United States. And quite recently, he brought out uh, his book called The Post-Christian Mind, 
And in a sense, this is the theme of his talk tonight. And uh, we're very grateful that he has felt able to come tonight. Harry is a great supporter of marriage. And I hope it won't embarrass them, me to say tonight, that uh, Harry and Nancy themselves are a wonderful example to us of a Christian marriage. Um, I believe I'm right in saying, but he will correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure, uh, that uh, on Boxing Day in the year 2000, which is more than a year ago, on Boxing Day in the year 2000, they celebrated their diamond wedding. And uh, that's a marvellous example, I think, of faithful Christian marriage. And so it's uh, particularly delightful for us to have you both with us this evening. Let me just tell you a little bit about the format of the evening. In a moment, uh, Humphrey is going to bring to us uh, the Word of God in a very short time of prayer. And then he will hand over to Harry, who is going to talk to us under the general theme, Reflections on the Post-Christian Mind. And immediately after that, Humphrey will ask him a number of prearranged questions. They're my favourite questions. I like prearranged questions, because I can give prearranged answers as well. <laughs> and if there is time, there will be an opportunity also for a short time of open questions, which I shall try to control. So, uh, without any more ado, uh, having welcomed you all, in particular welcome to Harry Nancy, I'm going to ask Humphrey if he'll lead us in a short time uh, of Bible reading and prayer, and then we'll hear from Harry. Um, first of all, I'm going to read from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that hath not walked in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners, and hath not sat in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law will he exercise himself day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the waterside, that will bring forth his fruit in due season. His leaf also shall not wither, and look, Whatsoever he doeth, it shall prosper. As for the ungodly, it is not so with them. But they are like the chaff, which the wind scattereth away from the face of the earth. Therefore the ungodly shall not be able to stand in the judgment, neither the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, and the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's pray. First of all, a prayer of thanksgiving. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, thine unworthy worthy servants, do give thee most humble and hearty thanks for all thy goodness and loving kindness to us and to all men. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and for all the blessings of this life. But above all, for thine inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace, and for the hope of glory. And we beseech thee, give us that due sense of all thy mercies, that our hearts may be unfeignedly thankful, and that we show forth thy praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, 
by giving up ourselves to thy service, and by walking before thee in holiness and righteousness all our days. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be all honour and glory, world without end. Amen. Amen. Dear Father God, we pray for Harry now as he comes to speak to us. Please give him strength, boldness and lucidity. Please give us minds willing to learn and able to remember. Show each one of us how we can put what we learn into action and then by your grace enable us to get on and do it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to hand over to our main speaker tonight, our only speaker, Dr. Harry Blamires. Well, I must say it's very delightful to be here again. Um, it seems a long time since uh, 1990, you say, 1990. But I'm full of admiration, of course, for the work you're doing. Uh, and we have very happy memories of our previous visit. Uh, but I must confess that I'm a bit, a bit out of practice as a public speaker, spent too much time at my desk, I suppose, and I should say that my book, The Post-Christian Mind, which really brings me here, is a book that was produced almost by accident. As a writer, I've been involved out of the theological field for some time, I've been working mostly in, in the field of English usage, and I'm still occupied largely with that. The publishers seem to think that there's an insatiable public appetite for books on usage, and I'm working on one at the moment for, for Penguin, a book on logical thinking. Well, it's all due to the fact that about ten years ago I became obsessed with the amount of sheer error especially illogicality, I found in newspapers and in radio broadcasts. And I started collecting specimens. I think I have a store of 7,500 uh, cards with uh, newspaper sentences stuck on them, which are silly in one way or another. Well, I mention this because, of course, you can't go on looking for errors of that kind without stumbling across an awful lot of nonsense of another kind. And um, I kept um, putting aside from time to time uh, things from the press which uh, interested me in a quite different way. Um, I didn't have a very clear idea of what I was going to do with them. But um, actually, uh, a couple of years ago, an American theological publisher who had done some of my books in the past asked me to do something again. So I started to put together a kind of picture of the mental climate we were inhabiting now as uh, gleaned from the sort of stuff you find in the press and so on. Well, I have to admit that the last thing I expected was that the American publisher might find a U UK publisher for this particular book I assumed that it was far too politically incorrect for uh, publication over here. So I was rather delighted when SBCK wrote to me to say that they were taking it. Um, it suggested a willingness to tackle issues head-on, which I thought uh, that particular publisher had lost. Well, you don't need me to remind you 
how shockingly alien to Christian thinking contemporary notions have become. I mean, the collision between Christian and secularist thinking is now a very stark one, and it's bound to be so. I mean, for Christians, the ultimate meaning of life lies outside time. For us, it's the Christian revelation that makes sense of history and all our human experience. Everything that gives point and purpose to our lives relates to the divine drama of creation and redemption which the post-Christian mind regards as so much idle dreaming. When you got rid of the notion of an almighty God, where do you locate the basis of morality, the root of value, the source of meaning? It can only be in the individual self, grounded here in nature. And that's what we find in studying what our contemporaries have to say. The standard articulation of moral judgments in terms of virtues and vices is replaced by a strange collection of subjectivist concepts such as self-realization and self-fulfillment, getting to know yourself, largely concerned to boost the individual in a comfortable progress through youth to age. Well, it is now nearly 40 years since I made a systematic analysis of the collision between Christian and secularist thinking in the Christian mind. I'll just quote the last few lines of the book. It was a question I raised. Will the Christians of the next 50 years deepen and clarify their Christian commitment at the intellectual and social levels, meeting and challenging not only secularism's assault upon personal morality and the life of the soul, but also secularism's truncated and perverted view of the meaning of life and the purpose of the social order. Well, there are still another 11 years left before the 50 are up, but it appears to me that what those 40 years have done is to widen the gap. And especially worrying, perhaps, is that in many supposedly Christian circles, the Christian recognition of the gap has been modified. If I were to compare the reception of these two books, 40 years apart, I'm bound to recognize a change in response. Of course, any Christian writer who passes judgment on current attitudes is going to meet with hostility, but he's also going to meet with friendly appreciation, as I have done from the present company. There are always friends as well as enemies. It's when the friends cease to be friends that one takes special notice. And if I compare how the church times received the Christian mind with rapturous enthusiasm and dubbed me defender of the faith, and compare it with how the same journal commented on the same message received 40 years later in the first Christian mind, when it was written off as oversimplistic and over-the-top. Well, I think there's been a change somewhere. One, one must hope that such attitudes don't tell us as much about the state of the church as they do about the choice of reviewers. But incidentally, one of the difficulties produced by living a long life 
as a writer is this. If at the age of 30 you attack current thinking, you're a bright young rebel, healthily impatient with the status quo. But if at the age of 70 plus you attack current thinking, you're an old fogey with your mind fixated on the past. Well, I've always recognized that Christians can be divided into two groups. Those who are deeply aware of the clash between the church and the world, and those who are not. Uh, somehow, we seem to be different breeds. Those of us in the former group can scarcely pick up a newspaper or turn on the television or the radio without mentally having to say, oh no, no, that's not what life is all about. Wherever we turn, things are being said or implied that give us status to earthly life, which we know it cannot have. For us, it's not the sum of all things. And we tend to feel that a vast demolition job has to be done on the modern mind before real progress can be made in evangelizing our contemporaries. That other group of fellow Christians astonish us by seeming so unaware of the great discrepancy between Christendom and the contemporary world. They don't seem to be on our wavelength. Some of them even warn us against preaching a message which the modern mind cannot embrace. They will dilute basic doctrinal truths, whittle away moral injunctions in the interest of being sympathetically in touch with our contemporaries and in tune with the taste of the age. Well, I've always belonged to the first group. I've always been deeply conscious of the enmity that faces us Christians. Indeed, sometimes I've wondered whether I ought to psychologize myself in this respect. Am I a bit of a case? I mean, looking back, I can see that from a fairly early age I was aware of the collision between sense and nonsense in the world around me. For one thing, I was born and brought up in Yorkshire. My parents were church-going believers. They were suspicious, as Yorkshire people so often are, of novelties and fashions. From the way they talked, I early imbibed a notion that if a thing was new and fashionable, it was likely to be silly and quite probably, <laughs> and quite probably wicked. <laughs> a suspicion of what was generally accepted and praised established itself in my mind. The newer and more popular the thing, the more questionable it was. I remember as a youngster visiting um, some rather distant relations in Nottinghamshire and hearing a full-grown man use the words, Of course it's true, I read it in the mirror. <laughs> My home background was such that this appalled me. Surely, if something were proclaimed in the mirror, it was more likely to be false than true. <laughs> well, I was inclined to interpret this difference of attitude as one more piece of evidence that only Yorkshire people could tell the difference between the genuine and the phony. <laughs> However, when I went to a state high school which had the old grammar school's tile curriculum, I acquired a rather different interpretation of the collision between the genuine and the phony. Experience forced it on me. <laughs> For the parish church we attended happened to have a faithful vicar and curate who preached the word without apology. Now, most of the teachers who taught me at school were good at their job, 
They knew their staff, made sure that we did. But though the older ones were known to have connections with churches and chapels, the younger ones tended to be sceptical humanists. And the younger ones were the cleverer ones. I find it difficult to make the point I want to make without exaggeration, but the prevailing ethos of the school often showed up in sharp contrast with the attitudes one imbibed at church. Moreover, our young curate, a very able man who later became a bishop, was always happy to pick up some schoolmaster's heretical statement which we conveyed to him and denounce it from the pulpit. <laughs> so I was educated by rival institutions, and I suppose I have never lost the sense of the world in conflict. Uh, what I'd like to focus on in the rest of the talk is the way in which the campaign of modern secularism against Christian teaching has involved corruption of our vocabulary. I've been so much concerned with questions of vocabulary over the last few years that it's a natural thing for me to concentrate on. There are two main aspects of this corruption. The decomposition of our moral standards and the decomposition of our faith. Well, I touched on some of these matters in the post-Christian line. For instance, I noted how 60 or 70 years ago, a standard dictionary, my own Oxford Dictionary, defines the meaning of the word family as the group consisting of parents and their children. But the word has now acquired qualifying terms such as traditional family, nuclear family on the one hand, and single parent family, lone parent family on the other hand. In other words, the old norm has become a variant, one among other versions of essentially the same thing. That is only one aspect of the process by which forces in our age are bent on decomposing the civilization of the Christian West. The attack on the institution of the family is a crucial instance. It's gone a long way. Only last week I read a piece, you probably... Most of you come across it in the newspaper about a troublesome young girl, a teenager, quite out of control of her parents, falling repeatedly into the hands of the police for acts of theft and violence. The piece I read about this youngster expressed the extreme surprise felt by social workers and journalists. She came from a secure and well-balanced home. Nothing could be healthier, they said, or more congenial than this girl's home background. It was not at all a dysfunctional family, an excellent home, where the girl was looked after and loved by devoted parents. The journalist happened to add, to corroborate the case, that all had been plain sailing ever since with the family group, ever since the mother divorced the girl's father shortly after her birth. So that's what it can mean now, to be brought up in a holy, harmonious, non-dysfunctional family. Your father's a non-person, bulldozed out of existence. Well, in the persecution mind, I made a considerable attack on a leader from the Times in this connection, which tried to accommodate various new lifestyles under the heading family values. And I suggested that neither the word family nor the word values is now used correctly. Well, now, I was most surprised last weekend to find how firmly I had hit the nail on the head. 
In the Sunday Times, there was an article by one Melanie Cable Alexander, lone mother of Lord Snowden's love child, in which she gives advice to Liz Hurley about her future baby, Damien. At one point, she comments on the argument that the children of lone parents often turn out badly. This is her reply. Ironically, I have found that because the demands placed on single parents are so great and the commitment required to sustain their unit huge, they subscribe more passionately to family values than the average couple. So there was a phrase, family values, launched, and now here it is. means nothing, of course. The process which has decomposed the word family has, of course, been applied to the word sexual. Traditionally, the word sexual referred to relations between male and female. Again, my own old Oxford Dictionary, bought in my lifetime, does not include the word heterosexual, although there are 80 words on the he with hetero. Why? Because at the time of its publication, the word heterosexual would simply have meant sexual. The norm, sexual, in relation to men and women, has now become a variant. Heterosexual, which is of parallel significance to homosexual or even bisexual. You downgrade a thing by making it only one of many. If the traditional family unit represents only one possible pattern for what we call the lifestyle, and everyone is free to choose his or her own, the family is downgraded. And of course, if Christianity is only one of several religions on the market, Christianity is downgraded. Once we were supposed to be a Christian country. The monarch was dependent on the faith. Prince Charles tells us that he wants to be, def to be defender of faith, and it seems that there may be a whole bag full of specific faiths to choose from. The norm becomes the variant. The standard has disappeared. What was once taught in schools was scripture, which meant the Bible. Then it became divinity, and it was still Christian teaching. Then it turned into religious knowledge which covered excursions into Buddhism, Islam, and anything else that might stake a claim. Thus, we moved away from the situation in which our national religious norm was Christianity, as officially recognized by the state church, the monarchy, and what was taught in school. The norm became one variant among a group of religions. And now I'm told that all that has been replaced by citizenship, whatever that means, certainly it suggests a worldly content that can have little to do with the immortal soul. As far as I can see, we're all citizens, and what makes us citizens has not got nothing at all to do with morality or belief. Well, I don't think we can overestimate the amount of damage done by manipulation of vocabulary. The professional advisors of our opinion formers are still aware of the power of words. I read another interesting article a week ago. It seems that when the people anxious to defend the right to hunt sought professional advice about their campaign, they were warned not to use the word hunt in definition of their cause and not to mention animals. Apparently... <laughs> 
the, this, the expert suggested use of the word countryside as a word with a wholesome, sentimental appeal to be used alongside the word alliance, which suggested the coming together of numerous interests. Well, I've never felt all that strongly about the hunting issue, but I was fascinated by this further example of what words can do. Think of what the homosexual community achieved by adopting the word gay. Think what a transformation of attitudes that has achieved. The proper terms, like sodomy and sodomite, had associations only with what was evil and disgusting. The slang words like pansy and queer were all derogatory. But the so-called gay movement has pretty well expunged such terms from use. They are as politically incorrect as talk of backward children or cripples. It's difficult, I think, for our younger contemporaries to grasp the momentousness of this change. Living in Winchester, I was called up for jury service on the day that the last big national homosexual trial of the century was due to start, the trial at Winchester Assizes of Lord Montague of Beaulieu, which sent him to jail. Well, mercifully, I was relieved of the obligation at the last moment before the three-week hearing began. But not many people, I think, have to adjust themselves to always speak kindly and uncritically of acts for which earlier in life they were required to send people to jail. Some momentous change. Well, the process of decomposing our society and its moral attitudes has involved getting rid of categories marked by words such as family and marriage as traditionally understood. The words husband and wife give place to the word partner, so that the distinctive categories of the married and the unmarried disappear. I heard a few days back a program on Radio 4 in which a cosmetic surgeon was interviewed. Some of you may have heard it. He specialised in restructuring people's faces often faces damaged by accidents. At one point he was asked about those women who require cosmetic improvements to their faces for other reasons than because of damage. What were their motives? They hoped they're going to achieve something, he said, a better job or a better partner. There you have the concept partner as a changeable entity, like a job or a house. I wondered whether, if the word had not been given its comparatively new meaning, he would have been able to say, they hope they're going to achieve something, a better job or a better husband. Somehow the association of the word husband would hinder such usage, I think. Incidentally, talking of this uh, <laughs> destruction of categories, I recently heard an account from a woman I know well, of her experience with an interviewing panel for a new job in the educational field. She saw herself particularly well qualified for the job, and um, when she didn't get it, she put in enquiries, as people do these days, to the interviewing panel. Um, and she was told that she was, in fact, number two in the panel's judgment and would have been number one and got the job, but for the fact 
that in the course of her interview she had used the word illegitimate of children. Well, I don't particularly wish to defend the use of the word illegitimate in any context, but to note that this is one more instance of distinctive categories, legitimate and illegitimate, being ironed out of existence. There's a rather amusing letter in, in the Times, uh, or in the last fortnight, um, from a, a woman who spoke of, um, I think it was her own relation, or great-aunt or something, a lady of some substance anyway, who was not married, but she had been comforted by a serving-maid who said, it's not at all bad being a spinster, ma'am, once you've got over the disgrace. Well, <laughs> there... <laughs> There's a word that's gone across, hasn't it, spinster. Another instance of decomposing categories. A woman who once would have had either the category miss or the category missus may now be labelled manuscripts, as far as I can see, and that's what happens. <laughs> 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 I don't know. Oddly enough, oddly enough, I read a piece in a recent saga magazine, lamenting the use of Christian names. I didn't know there was any feeling about this. It's rather interesting. Lamenting the use of uh, Christian names for patients in hospitals and for people contacted by the social services. Um, there seems to be a backlash against uh, this. Um, I didn't realize it was a live issue. Uh, however, one recognizes that this movement away from Mr. This and Mr. That or Mrs. This or Miss That does represent another process of decomposition. The distinctive categories in human relationship resembled, re represented by the closely personal and domestic on the one hand and the formal and official on the other hand, they're all ironed out. After all, these categories do enrich life. Even the personal character has its category has its subdivisions. Mrs. Elizabeth Thompson, maybe Elizabeth to those who taught her at school, and Lizzie to her family and close friends. For that matter, her husband may call her cuddles. And I suppose if that were the case and she went into hospital and the nurse said, what I used to being called at home, she would have to say, well, generally it's cuddles. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I expect some of you have been through this experience. <laughs> uh, anyway, these things are not very important in themselves. But they are characteristic of what I call a society in a state of decomposition. Uh, a more recent uh, development that I recorded in the post-Christian mind is the fashion seemingly beginning, um, the persecuting man, seemingly beginning to take hold of equating a divorce with a marriage by providing a divorce with symbolic ceremonies of separation to match the wedding ceremonies of personal commitment. Some of the practices adopted would seem farcical if they were not tragic. Here's one. We took the ribbon from our wedding car, a Bentley and tied it round ourselves in a figure of eight. Then we cut it and fell backwards away from each other. It felt like symbolically separating. It cemented a new phase of my life. It was a symbolic severing of our emotional ties. Well, even that's mild stuff compared to the couple who celebrated their separation by sitting in a hot bath in silence 
just being and feeling together. They apologised to each other for causing pain, and we wept buckets for it. Well, I cite these cases because there's one more instance of this decomposition. The marriage ceremony is devalued by matching it with divorce, as arriving is matched with departing. You shake hands and you shake hands and you go. I mean, just another. Well, in some ways, more interesting this than this, perhaps, is another aspect of what I call decomposition. It's the cultivation of a vocabulary designed to pull the wool over the eyes of the public in relation to any matter specifically religious. A good deal of deception relies on the manufacture of false antitheses. If someone writes a book scornful of traditional moral, morals or beliefs, he is described, or she, as bold and courageous, with the implication that people who would take the opposite traditional and conservative views on such matters are timid and fearful. If someone tries to wash away the fundamentals of Christian teaching, or put them on a level with the latest claptrap from psychobabble, he is said to be open in his thinking, as opposed to firm believers who are closed, narrow in their thinking. If someone writes in sympathy with moral permissiveness, he's said to be a person of compassion and understanding, while the defender of Christian morality is described as rigid and judgmental. The emotive appeal of such contrasts is powerful. A contradiction is implied between compassion for troubled sinners and clear recognition of sin as sin, between the virtue of charity and lucid moral analysis, between humility and attachment to moral rectitude. The com this confusion is increased by linking up sympathetic emotions with condemnation of evil and harsh rigidity with attachment to what is virtuous. By easy transition, hypocrisy, priggishness, self-righteousness, and Phariseeism are mixed up in a messy verbal hash along with piety, devoutness, orthodoxy, attendance at public worship. On the other side, sincerity, humility, frankness, unassumingness are baked in a solid verbal pie along with serial polygamy, sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, and undisciplined worldliness. I remember touching on this issue back in the 1980s in a book I wrote called Where Do We Stand? I'd been stirred by the trend set by attention-seeking theologians to baptize the new sexual permissiveness that had blossomed since the 60s. I analyzed the pseudo-vocabulary of the alternative ethic. It was the time when the young were urged in such matters to cherish self-awareness, not to be afraid of experience, especially any experience which might make them fuller or deeper. They were urged in sexual matters to be true to themselves, self-giving, positive, mature, adult, generous, life-affirming, unafraid, and so on. Any word, however vague or however irrelevant to the matter in question, would do, provided that it oozed with sentimentality and conveyed an approval noise, and provided also no one talked of 
purity or virginity, of chastity or fidelity, of modesty or self-control. Well, that's how the fabric of, mora of morality was decomposed. I know impressionable Christians can readily have their heads put in a spin by this insidious propaganda. They know the Christian call for loving-kindness, compassion, tenderness, and forgiveness, and they're made to question whether they're not failing in these virtues by denying a Christian blessing to all manner of adulterous and illicit relationships. Attention is focused on the unhappiness and frustration of men and women with tangled sex lives, and then a proper call for compassion is turned into a general requirement for benediction on all varieties of vice. A curtain is often conveniently drawn over the lot of forsaken partners and abandoned children. No one who's worked in higher education and been repeatedly confronted by the maturing offspring of broken homes can possibly be fooled by the drawing of that curtain. Spend a few hours with the racked and tormented young people who pray the price of parental liberation, then pick up a religious publication that is oozing with pseudo-pious sentimentality about our permissive society, and you'll feel like picking up a gun. It's one of the biggest lies by which the devil deceives our generation to pretend that people of true compassion will back the loosening of moral and domestic ties out of tenderness to adults whose sexual wantonness and selfishness has landed them in a mess. I've just been looking at a critique of the new destructive terminology sent me by um, a priest in the Episcopal Church in the USA who's a stout defender of orthodoxy. He begins like this. It's very difficult to talk about theology in the Episcopal Church because too many assume that those who believe God has spoken clearly are bigoted and those who don't are wise. An attack had been made on him and his kind by a bishop, an American bishop, whose words deserve analysis. The bishop warned of those who were, quote, backing themselves into tighter and tighter circles of self-justification and self-righteousness, attempting to write their prejudices into canon law, pursuing legalism at the expense of compassion, understanding, and mercy. They want to settle our differences with a vengeance. There seems to be a resurgence of biblicism, which thinks that a simple, unequivocal, the Bible says, will settle our differences. The world is far more complex and ambiguous than these people know. Well, there you have the vocabulary of liberalism. On the one hand, you have people of compassion, understanding and mercy who commit themselves to nothing. On the other hand, those who affirm about a moral or doctrinal issue are backing themselves into a tight circle. They are self-righteous and lack compassion and mercy. They are unable to see that biblical authority cannot cater for our complex and ambiguous world. Well, as my correspondent observes, 
Complex and ambiguous are here magic words used to banish any troublesome claim that an idea might be true, even though it's unpopular with liberals. The truth is that language should be used for an expression of thought, but increasingly it is used for evasion of thought, indeed for escape from thought, and what I have quoted gives us an instance of this. You are expressing a thought if you say God became man, or indeed if you say I do not believe in the doctrine of the Incarnation. But you are evading thought, escaping thought, if you say in a context such as this, the world is complex, the world is ambiguous. I have often wondered how the apostles of the new pseudo-Christian moral and intellectual anarchy would stand up to some tyrannical power that condemned them for their beliefs as genuine Christian martyrs have been condemned in the past. I have thought it amusing sometimes to try the pic to picture the scene as an Episcopal martyr dies at the stake for beliefs such as this. The flames gather round him and he gives his last message to the world. I die gladly for this cause, sure that the world's complexity and ambiguity will ultimately overcome the naiveties of biblical teaching. Thank you. Thank you. That's all. I leave it at that. Call people to order. I'm sorry to interrupt your conversations. I'm sure you can finish them afterwards. Um, I'm going to ask um, Harry just a few questions, which he's kindly agreed to answer. Now, um, the first of these is, uh, to what extent has our civilization depended on a Christian worldview? Um, well, the civilization is built on the conquest of nature. On the material front, that's fairly obvious. Our ancestors have built us houses, villages, cities to protect us, bridges over roads, rivers, bridges over rivers, railways, canals, and so on, with wires and pipes carrying power and water. Physical structures and networks guarantee our civilization. It's all seen to me that exactly parallel to these physical frameworks and networks, which are our defense against nature, are of course all those immaterial things, like our system of government, our system of law, and of course our practice of monogamous marriage. I mean, Ours is not, of course, the first civilization to reckon with this. Um, in Virgil's underworld, there's a place where adulterers await their punishment in the afterlife. But Christian teaching has put a special emphasis on the need to control the power of nature within us. It's just as much in need of civilizing as is our outer environment. I, I, I think it's the sense of the wholeness of the civilizing process that's being lost. It's as though there's no longer any connection in people's minds 
between protecting each other from wild beasts or from tornadoes and protecting them from their own appetites, the sort of wreckage that can be produced by uncontrolled indulgence of natural appetites, sex, thirst, addiction, and so on. It seems to me disastrous that people are not seeing the connection between the public lawlessness on the streets and the private lawlessness of the attack on marriage. There are two items I picked up from the press this week. The Joseph Roundtree Foundation has made a study of 14,000 children between 11 and 17. One in four of the 13 and 14-year-olds regularly indulges in binge drinking. During the past month, they had consumed five or more alcoholic drinks in one session. The figure one in four for the 13 and 14-year-olds rises to 59% boys and 54% girls in 14 to 15 years age group. In the same paper, Police officers are to be stationed in hundreds of Britain's roughest secondary schools in an effort to curb the escalating crisis in youth crime. One in four 15 to 16 year olds carries a weapon. Well, let me put that at the side of another sentence taken from the piece I referred to in my paper. The piece written by the unmarried mother to Liz Hurley. Friends of mine in a similar situation can be a lifeline. I have a fantastic doctor friend, Daz Tasmin, who has a child called Luke, who is the same age as Jasper, etc. We juggle our childcare, and we even share a nanny. And when Tasmin is out on a hot date, I look after Luke for the night when I need a break. And Tasmin takes on Jasper when I need a break. What has sustained our civilization in the past has been just as much our official commitment to Christian marriage and the Christian family as has been our legal system. I suppose... Like me, you've been a bit bewildered by some of the things repeated in tributes to the Queen Mother. Everything about, uh, said about her seems to testify to her kindness and charm. Yet, whenever tributes have been paid on the radio or in the press, they have been peppered with statements to the effect that the Queen Mother represented the virtues or the values of a past age. There seems to have been a kind of embarrassment about praising someone's virtue without pushing them back into the past. We kept hearing the words Victorian. I suppose I'm not alone in wondering what the virtues are which are now outmoded and belong to history. When I found the answer spelt out, I believe it was Rhys Mogg in, in Monday's Times last week, Queen Elizabeth was our last eminent Victorian upholding the virtues and values of that age throughout her life, a belief in God, duty, the sanctity of marriage, hard work, and a passion for not wasting a moment of life. Well, now we know. Belief in God belongs to the past, doing one's duty. So does belief in the sanctity of marriage, in hard work, and not wasting time. 
The article does not go on to explain what has replaced these virtues and values. Till less does it explain why they have ceased to apply. Well, it, the piece illustrates one of the points I've made repeatedly. Our present mental and moral climate is all about decomposition, getting rid of absolutes, of principles, of frameworks, of short categories and demarcations, and reducing existence to a kind of vague, char characterless flux. I don't think you can speak of a revolution in attitudes, thought, or morality, because revolutions have always had some kind of logical basis. There was liberty, equality, fraternity behind the French Revolution, and Marxist dogma behind the Russian Revolution. But this seeming abolition of the established values and virtues seems to have no replacement for them. It's a kind of mental and moral anarchy, and I don't think civilization can stand that. The second question, um, Harry, is what role have the media played in the decomposition of our society? A very big role, of course. Um, <laughs> I think it was um, good on Good Friday. I read um, in the Times that uh, psychiatrists at Columbia University, New York, had just completed an 18-year survey of the effects of TV on adolescents. For 18 years, over 700 people between the ages of 12 and 30 were tracked. The report of the psychiatrist said that it showed the firmest link yet between television and violence. Few adolescents, few adolescents who watch less than an hour of television a day went on to commit, to commit violent acts later, actually 5.7%. The rate of later violent behavior rose to 22.5% for those who watched between one and three hours a day, and to 28.8% for those who watched for more than, more than three hours a day. The only astonishing thing about this report is the comment of the man who led the study, it's quite surprising we wouldn't have predicted what we found. Well, I fully, I dealt in fully in, in the post-Christian line with the influence of the media in respect of the role models it puts before us, young and old. I think it's especially distasteful. The practice of presenting, especially women, celebrated women to the public in magazine articles, or allowing them to present themselves on TV, doing full justice to their qualities and achievements in such a way as to provoke general admiration, especially perhaps from young girls. Then, by the way, somewhere in the presentation, a few things are said about private life, and it emerges very naturally that the celebrated woman has had one or two children by one or two fathers. And that's how the young are corrupted. But I would like to mention another aspect of the media's influence which struck me as I listened to an Any Questions program last week. I think last week, I probably mean the week before. There were four panelists. I couldn't name them now. One was an American, one a trade union leader, 
The third, if I remember rightly, represented the Liberal Democrat Party, and the fourth was Emma Nicholson, the MP. The straight question was asked, do you believe in life after death? <coughs> and the four men said no. Oh, where's that friend? Or do I mean three men? Anyway, all of them said no. But Emma Nicholson said, yes, of course. She didn't say that she was a Christian. She didn't refer to the Bible. She didn't refer to Christ. She took a line in what I suppose is basic natural theology. She just said, well, I can't believe that this is all just a con trick. In the context, I thought it a useful beginning. After all, if this life is all there is, with all its miseries for some, with all its frustrations and disappointments, with all its diseases and famines, its masses of crippled and broken people, what on earth is it all about? Why on earth are we here, endowed with a longing for something fairer and surer? But what was interesting was that no one on the panel seemed capable of responding on that philosophical level. No one even said, what do you mean? No one asked her to explain. No one took up the challenge. It seems to me that discussion at that philosophical level no longer seems to take place in public. Once it would have been a great thing on the BBC, you know, brain trustees. And I don't think there's much produced in print on that level either. If there is, I don't know of it. I mean the kind of public debate that produced G.K. Chesterton's orthodoxy and the everlasting man, or a bit later, C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain and Miracles. Something I'm sure um, is uh, very close to the heart of lots of people here, and which Harry uh, had lifelong uh, involvement with education. And I'd like to ask, um, Harry, what important battles have been lost already in education? What I have to say about education uh, quite answers that question. Obviously, battles have been lost. Um, I took up a, a lecturing post in the Church of England College of Education years ago, um, and I happened to encounter a chaplain who was sound as a bell, and we had lots of interesting talks. We talked a lot about the fact that the Christian faith didn't allow for the kind of teaching that lecturers were giving in education, in psychology, even in history and so on. It was that experience that led me to produce my first book, Repair the Ruins, uh, subtitled Reflections on Education from the Christian Point of View. In the preface, I summed up the problem like this. The student is common who, whilst professing Christianity, accepts from the books of psychologists, educationalists, historians and the like, theories which are fundamentally at variance with Christian teaching. The air needs to be cleared. You may believe in original sin, or you may accept an educational theory which denies it. You may believe in free will, or you may accept a psychological theory which denies it. But intellectual honesty demands that you should not embrace contradictions. Well, that was my concern with logic, I suppose, which has occupied me most of my writing life. I've been obsessed with the sheer illogicality of the positions so often adopted by people who call themselves Christians 
and then embrace the fashionable notions of the day which is just not logically compatible with the Christian view of the world. Well, Repair the Ruins came out in 1950. The title derives from John Milton, who wrote, The end of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parents by regaining to know God aright, and out of that knowledge to love him, to imitate him, to be like him as we may the nearest, by possessing our souls of true virtue, which, being united to the heavenly grace of faith, makes up the highest perfection. I do think, if one's going to generalize about this issue at all, that really the great heresy of the educational world today is the same as the heresy of the media world. It's the belief in inevitable progress and worship of the present and the future. I make this point because it's the excessive emphasis on contemporaneousness that produces the attitude that writes off traditional virtues and values that have lasted hundreds of years. I mean, education used to be supposed to lift people's minds above the local and above the contemporary. You didn't read ancient writers and philosophers just to understand the past. You did it to understand the present, to have something to compare it with and contrast it with. One wonders whether any age in history has so flattered itself as ours it has in writing of the past. I think we've become too conscious of ourselves as occupants of the big world of space and too neglectful of our place in history. The big world of space swamps us in the scheme of things. But when you consider how we stretch back in time, we seem to have a rather more substantial part in things. It was again in the Times that Rhys Margaret wrote a week ago, on May 24th, 1819, Queen Victoria was born, the year before George III died. The Queen Mother was born on August 4th, 1900, the year before Queen, uh, Queen Victoria's death. These three lives stretch more than a quarter millennium. Well, actually, in a book I published in 1965, Defense of Dogmatism, I made the point that if records had been kept on a sufficient scale during the last 2,000 years, it would presumably be possible to point to two dozen people whose lifespans of 80 years laid end to end covered the time between our Lord's birth in Bethlehem and the publication of today's newspaper. Uh, two dozen people filling that stretch of time, the same number you could squash into your sitting room, the same number would be squashed into a few square yards on the tube tray. I mean, it sheds light on the significance of our history <laughs> as opposed to that of our spatial environment. <laughs> yes. Just two oh, left. Yes, I, 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 I know this one was a bit of a shorter one, uh, but perhaps harder to answer. How important is it to have a Christian culture? Yeah, how important? Yes, um, well, the, the various ways in which we use the word culture. 
Um, some people don't like the word at all. Sometimes I think I don't. But in its broadest sense, obviously, the word turns our minds to the works of great artists, great writers, great composers, who have left us what we call our cultural inheritance. And much of that inheritance has been decidedly Christian. In that sense of the word, our Christian culture is represented, I suppose, by our great cathedrals, by the music of great Christian composers that is still performed in them, and, of course, in the concert hall, too. If you open newspaper accounts of great musical events, any week of the year you're likely to come across performances of Bach's Passions or Verdi's Requiem or the great masses by Mozart, Beethoven, and lots of others, and all those oratorios from Haydn and Handel to Elga and so on. Well, the, the great works of artists, the great works of artists too have been inspired to paint pictures of the Nativity or the Last Supper or the Crucifixion and even studies of the judgments. Well, our art galleries are well stocked with them. And of course, some of our greatest works of literature like Dante's Divine Comedy and Milton's Paradise Lost are a part of our Christian cultural inheritance. But we do use the word culture in a narrower sense. We might speak, say, of the culture of the Boy Scouts movement, meaning the ethos and practices that the movement encourages. Well, now, in England, we have a specifically national Christian culture, very much represented, I suppose, by this service this week. It's represented by the worship in the cathedrals and parish churches, by the King James Bible, the Book of Common Prayer, and I'm one of those who think these things are worth preserving. But there are very different cultures in other Christian denominations. I've been strongly reminded of that by communication received this week from New Zealand. It so happens that our youngest son married a New Zealand girl who was over here doing a period of teaching. Her parents were both officers in the Salvation Army who have done years of good work, social and religious. The mother died a week or two ago. We've just received a copy of the form of worship used at the service of remembrance. The first thing one notices is that the deceased is not said to have died or to have passed away on such and such a day, but to have been promoted to glory. One feels a touch of admiration for the sheer confidence of that. The second thing one notices is that the hymns represent the kind of verse which any person of literary taste would find most difficult to see. There's a good deal of sheer doggerel in them. Yet it goes with something which we might call the culture of the Salvation Army, a body which we all respect for the work they do, social and evangelistic. Now I have found it most unworthy when hymns of that quality are introduced into Anglican worship in churches where once the level of merch, word and music was good, not to have a good literary and musical culture in that sense is not culpable. So one doesn't criticize the Salvation Army on those grounds, but to throw away a good literary and musical culture, in my view, is a different matter. That is indeed culpable, we ought to know better. There's an awful lot in the Old Testament about not offering rubbish to God.
Yes, one more. Thank you very much, Harry. Uh, there's just, just one left. And that is, having uh, looked at all these things, how would you say we are to respond to the current secularism which you've so accurately described? Um, well, I suppose that secularism is decomposing our civilization. The Christian duty is to seek to restore it. In place of decomposition, we need a movement of thought and action which is directed to the opposite end of giving order and coherence to things. We know what it is that can give order and coherence to the civilization we dwell in. It is the Christian understanding of the human destiny explored and practiced. Individual lives have to be recomposed by recognizing the wholesale character of the Christian vocation. Well, now that's a lot of abstractions. So let me give you an example, fresh in my mind, because of another job of work I've just been asked to do in editing a piece for publication. In connection with it, I turned up a quotation that C.S. Lewis's friend Owen Barfield made, a remark about Lewis that seems to me to be extraordinarily observant. It's Somehow, what Lewis thought about everything was secretly present in what he said about anything. In a way, I suppose, that ought to be able to be said of any of us who profess to be Christians. What we think about everything ought to be present in what we say or do, we might add, about anything. We can see what that meant in Lewis's case. It points to the basic sensitivity to the human situation which never ought to leave the Christian. It shows itself in Lewis's writing in the way the apparently trivial is framed within the context of what is universally significant. He can make you feel that everything human beings are doing from day to day is ultimately a matter of the eternal. Let me give you an example. In the Screwtape Letters, the powers of hell and heaven bear down on the question whether Wormwood's human patient is going to overcome his irritation at the way his mother lifts her eyebrow, or the question whether he will take a country walk down to an old mill for tea. One day, the young man reads a book for pleasure instead of for vanity or show, and takes a walk on his own because he enjoys it. And the senior devil comes down on the junior devil like a ton of bricks. Two solid but commonplace pleasures have been enjoyed without any intrusion of conceit or self-congratulation. And the diabolical progress to date is all undone. There is anger in hell and a hint of joy in heaven. The understanding of life in terms such as these plainly overturns any scale of values based on familiar secular criteria. Over the simple decisions of daily life hangs the shadow of eternity, the serious, inescapable, ever-present background to life is the battle between heaven and hell. Thank you very much indeed. I'm sure you agree we're working Harry very hard tonight. Uh, he's kindly agreed um, something which I would not agree myself, to uh, 
have a short time of questions that people might want to ask of him, uh, perhaps on what he's touched on tonight, or that's too wide to say anything that you may care to enter your mind. But if you'd like to put one or two questions, then we've got some time to do that. Um, you'll have to indicate whether you do. And we want to record these questions as well. Um, those of you who have bought copies of the uh, autumn lectures will know that uh, if you play them all uh, on five occasions, I think I said something to the effect of what I'm about to say now, if you want to ask a question, you'll have to speak it into the microphone, and you're not to touch it, uh, you're just to speak into it. So, have we got a, a roving microphone, um, uh, which Mr. Dobson here will take around. If you want to ask something, can you just indicate, please, and uh, then we place this in front of you. And don't be afraid. David, D David Holloway. This is uh, uh, rather specific, but you've mentioned uh, the Church of England. Would you like to say what you think about the future of the Church of England? Some of us here are members of the Church of England, not all of us, but some. Would you like to? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't want me to try to be prophetic. Uh, we seem to be in a sad way in some respects, but we have been before. I mean, um, whenever I feel, um, you know, inclined to overdo the the critical line in relation to where things are going in the church, then uh, Nancy always says, "Well, think what it was like in the 18th century," and I suppose. <laughs> It was worse before, you know, in the early 18th century. You think of the sort of clergy who were a little more than them, so many of them, a little more than drawing their money and running about the country and so on. Things have been worse, I think, though not in this particular way. And, uh, no. I'm tempted to put the question to the speaker. Yes, I am. Well, uh, you, you think that'd be a good thing? To, to the questioner. No? Oh, I see. No? no. Well, for once, I, I managed to sign the sign of his name. Yeah. Um, I'd like to give two quotations of me and then ask you the question. It was William Cowper who said that when nations are to perish in their sins, it is in the church the leprosy begins. Then the son of the late Francis Schaeffer came up with a paraphrase of Psalm 23. Yeah. And it goes, I think, something like this. The Lord is my shepherd. You are my shepherd. I am my shepherd. Everything is my shepherd. Nothing is my shepherd. Now, to what extent is the church responsible for accelerating the decline that we are witnessing today? To what extent is the church responsible for accelerating the decline in society? Is that right? Yes. Well, the church reflects the state of society in, in some ways. Um, you know, it would be awfully easy to, easy to be superior about this and to say, you know, the clergy are not good enough. I mean, I remember C.S. Lewis saying to me in about 19, um, 19 years, no, it must have been about 1955, We've got some awful clergy coming along, 
And it's not just us, it's the Roman Catholics too. Uh, I mean, in other words, people have been talking about this for an awful long time. Uh, but, uh, I, I'm, I'm not quite with you over this particular quotation. It was from whom? It's William Cowper. He said, when nations are to perish in their sins, just in yes. the church, yes. leprosy begins. It seems to me that if the church doesn't practice the preachers, then it will have an effect upon society. Yes. So I, I want to know whether you think the church has a responsibility uh, in that sense. Well, it certainly has a responsibility, but it's very difficult to see how it can fulfill it. Um, We've. Uh, where did we lose it? Where did we lose the the the, the church going habit? Uh, how did how was it lost? I don't know. Um, I mean, when I was a child, there were about four hundred children in the Sunday school on a Sunday afternoon. I don't suppose that Sunday school would exist now. Um, they were getting some teaching. Um, some clergy were a little bit skeptical about it and said oh the parents just want to send them out so they can have a Sunday afternoon nap uh, maybe it was but uh, without the contact uh, I don't know what you can do I mean I saw I saw in the same paper once two, two photographs one of us two or three people in, in, a, in a church in a parish church kneeling um, the altar there and uh, forgotten now what service it was supposed to be and in the same paper there's a picture of the sort of rows and rows of Mohammedan Mohammedan bottoms in the air <laughs> all kneeling in rows and uh, um, what makes them go duty, there's a sense of duty we've lost that I mean you can't have a sense of duty to a God who doesn't exist. I mean, we've lost it. <laughs>